0: Welcome to the Prenda Family Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Crapo, and the purpose of this podcast is to talk about the components of empowerment in a conversational, inspirational, and real way. And today, we get to talk to Katie Broadbent, who, if you're familiar with treasure hunt reading, is the famous adventure Kate. She's also a speech-language pathologist, and she's the head of student experience at Prenda. She's also a mother of four really cute kids, so she knows what she's talking about. Katie, we're so glad to have you on today, and we're especially excited to learn from you about literacy. So to start our conversation tonight, tell us how your interest in literacy began. Thanks, I'm really excited to be
1: here. The story behind me getting into literacy. So when I was little, I was not a super strong reader, and my mom was really good. She was an English teacher, and She was really great at all things language, and I just wasn't great at it when I was little. And I always kind of felt like I was not good enough around the whole reading world, and I was really slow. All my friends would read faster than I I could, and I just didn't love it, and everyone else around me seemed to be getting it, and I just didn't feel that way. And I had a brother who was... Um, he had some learning disabilities and really had a hard time reading. So I watched as my mom pulled him out of school and put him in tutoring and homeschooled him and tried really, really hard to get this kiddo reading. And I just kind of watched and, and to me that demonstrated how important reading is. And I just watched my mom go through so much to try to get my brother reading that Um, something kind of clicked in me and I just noticed, oh, this is an important thing. And now that I've grown up and some, somewhere along the lines in college, I realized, oh, this illiteracy problem makes me very angry (laughs) for some reason. And it's, (laughs) It's funny because a lot of people are like, oh, what should you do with your life? What makes you happy? What are you passionate about? And I have this almost like negative passion where I just really hate illiteracy And so when I was in high school, I remember thinking like, okay, we've been teaching kids how to read for thousands of years. There has to be like the right way to do it. Like, why are there, why are we still debating what the right way to teach someone to read is? You know, it seems silly. And when I, after I I got out of college, started having kids and was a speech language pathologist and working in schools and things like that, and this, this problem of illiteracy, kept cropping up. And one day my mom sent me a book and she was like, Hey, you found this cleaning off the attic. This is the book that I used when I was teaching your brother to read all those years ago. And I was like, Oh my goodness, this is like a, a piece of my history. And in this, I started reading this book and I was all about the phonograms and I was like, Oh, what the heck, what the heck is a phonogram? Like, well, this is such a weird word, you know? And so I did some research, started reading the book and discovered, Oh my goodness, there's this whole other way to teach people how to read where we're not left feeling like I felt when I was little, where I just couldn't access whatever anyone, everyone else was accessing. I just couldn't access it. I didn't have the keys. I didn't have the the understanding that I needed to, to access all the fun stories and all the information. And so I really connected with that. And after doing a lot of research and talking to reading experts and specialists and parents who have dyslexic kids and, and just being in this world for a long time, I realized how powerful that information is and, and how the reason that there is so much illiteracy there, like I was just looking this up the other day, 21% of adult Americans are completely illiterate or functionally illiterate. That's 43 million people. And then I read something else that said that Two thirds of kids that graduate high school in America are reading below grade level, and that's so shocking to me, and it's just appalling because we know how to teach people how to read, and why we're not connecting the dots on this and and doing it in a way that more kids can access is so frustrating to me. So that's kind of how I got involved in literacy and why why Prenda is so supportive of teaching kids to read and to do it in a way that creates really strong foundation, foundational literacy skills so that we can give kids
0: this access point. And that is what started your passion project of Treasure Hunt Reading.
1: Yeah, essentially what I realized is, wow, all of these programs that, that teach literacy well and like deeply, they require a really well-trained adult or they require you to have a lot of money because you have to buy this book and these flashcards and do all of this stuff. And I thought, you know, it's not that complicated. We could just have one book and we could have one person teaching this in a multimodal sensory experiential way that can take the burden of that knowledge off of the adult and simplify what you need physically. You know, we just do one workbook in Treasure Hunt. And that can give so many more kids access to that foundational skill set.
0: You know, as a, as a homeschooling mom myself, Katie, I can very much relate to how confusing and overwhelming the prospect of teaching your, your child to read is. It, you know, when you think about it, before you actually start the process, you're, I, I wrongly assumed, oh, it shouldn't be that hard. You know, reading it's like it's like walking, it's like breathing, right? I can read, but then when you sit down and you go, oh wow, uh, what do I do? I, I have no foundational knowledge to to orient myself. And then, like you said, when I started doing research on my own about reading programs, they cost an arm and a leg. It's appalling. So I'm I'm so grateful for you and and your pioneer efforts to making this one book to making this in a way that's easily accessible and understandable for adults and that teaches foundational concepts to children so clearly. Coming from a parent and a guide, I am grateful for that gift that you've given us and that you've created for Prenda. It's been a
1: total honor and pleasure to, to be part of that creative process. And um, I use it with my own kids. I don't teach my own kids how to read anymore. They all do. They want. They, I try to teach them something and they say, I want to watch Adventure Kate. <laughs> so they have their workbooks. Even my little tiny four-year-old, she's, I'm like, you're way too young to learn how to read. I'm not going to put that pressure on you at this young age, but she's, she's very gung-ho about it that she's going to do her treasure hunt. So it's fun.
0: That is really cool. So a buzzword right now in teaching literacy to students is sight words. Can you tell us more about sight words and if we should use sight words and how we should use sight words? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So typically what happens in a traditional approach to teaching literacy that isn't associated with the phones, what happens is we teach kids letter sounds and the short vowels so that they can read words like cat and dog and bat. And then we're like, okay, great. We taught them phonics and now we're going to switch over to teaching them sight words. So we get kindergartners, first grade, second grade, and third grade all of these lists of words we need to memorize. And then we kind of have this false belief that the reason that we do that is because English doesn't make sense, right? The rules, there are more exceptions to the rules than there are words that keep the rules. So we're just, we just have to memorize everything. When really this is not true of the English language, the English language is way more decodable or logical than it is made of exceptions. This is kind of a false belief that we have mostly because we just weren't us as adults now in in our generation, we weren't taught a deeper way to learn how to read. We were taught sight words mostly. So we don't know that there's a different way. And it seems normal and logical to us to just have to memorize a bunch of words. Essentially what the phonograms do is instead of me, imagine I have a bunch of Legos and I have a, a, a Lego boat and a Lego car. And I'm asking you to hold things as I hand them to you. So I'm just going to hand you a Lego boat, hand you a Lego plane, a, le- a Lego tree, a Lego car, any like just of all of this Lego stuff. And soon you're holding so many things, you're like, well, I, I can't hold all of this anymore. Right. And then you start dropping things. And this is equivalent to asking a child to hold too much in their memory when really we could take all of those Legos apart. And there would be a lot of Legos, but there would be a very finite number of Legos and you could build any of those things as you needed them. And that would be a much more efficient, effective way for you to get the Lego boat and get the Lego car, right? You could build it yourself as you go. And that's kind of what phonograms are. Instead of taking a whole word approach where we just look at the whole words all together, instead of their letters and sounds, like we do when we are memorizing sight words, We're teaching kids the component parts. So then as they get into the higher reading levels, they can decode or sound out any word that they meet. They don't have to have someone come in and say, oh, that's this word. Here it is on a flashcard. You need to memorize it for every single word in the English language. And that's why we have such low literacy levels in America is because we're dependent on sight words. We've never really finished learning how to read and developing the skill of decoding words that are maybe a more complicated than cat and dog and dad so that's kind of the landscape of why we have this illiteracy epidemic really and the solution to it is teaching the real rules of english and teaching the phonograms so we have true deep literacy we start to see this problem in third or fourth grade so perhaps some of our listeners have gone through this with their kids where their their kids were great readers until about third or fourth grade and then they started having all these problems And the reason that that happens is that in about third or fourth grade, we stop learning how to read and we start reading to learn, which means that everyone assumes that you've got the basics of literacy down and now you can use that literacy to learn math, to learn science, to learn history. As you go into these other subjects, you see words that you've never even heard before and you have to sound them out and figure out what they mean. And if you don't have strong decoding skills, You suddenly can't access this higher level of literacy and the phonograms and the rules are the key to that higher level of literacy that we are missing in our country.
0: This sounds like it goes right along with our Prenda model of filling the gaps and mastery based learning. You know, we're going to we're going to master the phonograms. So we're going to fill all of our gaps to then prepare this great foundation for our students to succeed in future grades.
1: Exactly. You have to do the hard, deep work first, and then you get the deeper
0: reward later. I love that. Getting your roots really deep. Our students roots really deep. So great, Katie. So a lot of parents feel a lot of stress around helping their students become successful readers. What advice would you give people who are working through these struggles?
1: Yeah, there is a lot of stress wrapped up in this. And I think that's because as adults and as parents, we really that this like the foundational skill that you use to learn all the other foundational skills. Um so there is kind of some stress wrapped up in in this. If it doesn't go well or if you your your students, your children happen to struggle with this, the risk of that kind of carries some weight. And so I guess my advice would just be to take a deep breath and realize that it's going to be okay and there are resources and help out there and also that your job isn't to just get your kids to sound words out right. There's a bit of reframing we can do around what your job as a parent is to help your student become ready to read and to want that. And we feel so much stress around this topic that we kind of go into like, you have to, and you just this like force of this, this is the way it has to work. And, and you have to be on schedule and you have to be compared to these other kids. And if you're not doing this, you're behind. And we just bring all of that with us when really none of that's necessary or helpful. So if we just take a deep breath and, and remember to see our kids as individuals who don't need to compete against their peers, they don't need to be on someone's arbitrary schedule. Everyone is on their own developmental sequence and everyone deserves to be unconditionally loved and wrapped up regardless of their ability to read or not. So separate their ability to read from their value to you and, and, um, how much praise and how proud you are of them. Don't allow a a reading struggle to negatively affect your relationship or or your perception of your child because they're, they're going to feel that. And it's interesting. I talk to a lot of parents who say like, oh, I could never teach my own children. Like my children won't learn from me. They learn better from other people. And through all of the work that we've done um, in building Prenda and and the, the research behind how we've built Prenda, a lot of it lies this idea of attachment and psychological safety. So students look to their parents for this unconditional love and acceptance, right? So when you're teaching something and the child's trying to get something right, there's a p- potential there for them to get it wrong. And then they receive correction from you instead of un- unconditional love. So it hurts them less to receive correction for someone, from someone that they're not looking to for unconditional love. And that's why we have kind of this pattern that repeats a lot, especially in the homeschooling world where parents feel like my, my kids don't learn from me. So if we can restore those connections and and be very adamant and clear with kids that their performance about their education has nothing to do with how much we love them, right? And separate that, be really clear. That's super helpful and very healthy. And maybe we'll talk later about some tips and tricks you can do while you're reading to kind of take that stress and that pressure off. But I think just that reframing of my job isn't just to get them to decode. Really what your job is, is to help your students fall in love with stories. If you can do that, you are setting them up to be great readers. So essentially what happens, and I'm going to tell a little story, if that's okay, Emily, from um, a good friend and mentor of mine, Marlene Peterson. She's a wonderful educational advocate that I've learned a lot from. And she tells this beautiful story about learning how to read. She equates it to chocolate cake. So if a child came to you and they said, I'm hungry, I want a snack or I want a treat, you would not set out a cup of flour and a teaspoon of vinegar and a tablespoon of salt and some baker's chocolate and ask them to enjoy that, right? That would be silly. No one would have a good experience eating all of that stuff, (laughs) right? You would, that child's not going to come back to that table, essentially. So if we take all of those ingredients and mix them up and bake them into a chocolate cake and then invite the the child to that table, they're going to love that. And they're going to come back to that table again and again and again. And once they're really into that chocolate cake, you can say, you know what, maybe you could learn how to bake this cake and I can show you all of the different parts and the ingredients and in the recipe, would you, would you be interested in that? And you can offer and invite them to that. And they might say, yes, that's amazing. And they might say, no, I'm not ready for that yet. And you'll say, great. Like, let's enjoy some more cake. Right. So that's kind of how the components of learning to read are. We start teaching our kids to read by teaching them letter sounds and teaching them to write when they're very, very little. Cause we feel this pressure, right. To make sure that they're, competing against their their peers well they're not behind when really we need to just take a deep breath and think what is an amazing story Stories are the chocolate cake of reading right there we take all of the the sounds and the words and the vocabulary that we would typically put on flashcards broken up into pieces like the ingredients of the cake and we put them all together into a story and we give that that daily story that the daily daily read aloud the constant, that constant exposure to wonderful and wonderful stories, And then soon enough, the child's like, oh, I want to read my own stories and I want this action, can you teach me? And now that the student has had enough cake and they're ready to move on to, and that story to me helps me reframe and like de-stress a little bit where it's like, oh, like my student's not ready to swallow this vinegar of learning about adjectives today. <laughs> That's okay. We'll shift and chocolate cake, and we'll write a poem and we'll learn about adjectives in this more delightful way. So, that kind of reframing really helps.
0: That sounds like that. Example of giving them flour and baking soda and vinegar and baker's chocolate sounds like something I did with my kids once, uh teaching them their the the five the different tastes. You have bitter, you have sour, (laughs) you have salty. And uh, you know, it's not something that they ever ask for again. My kids have after tasting baking soda are just like, you know, I'm good. I I don't need to taste any of that.
1: The table, huh? And then you have to force them and bribe them and say, okay, hey, if you come and, and do, take this vinegar, I'll give you a sticker. Or if you don't do this, then you're not going to get to go outside to play. Right. You kind of get into these like bartering games with your kids because they don't want to do the things that are yucky to them. Right. Which is totally understandable. Right. So our job as parents is just to make this delightful. So there are a few other things you can do here that really drive home the idea that reading is super valuable to your kids. So the first is to set a really good example of reading when they sneak downstairs and they're supposed to be in their bed. If they see you reading, they're going to think in their brains. Oh, when mom or dad has free time, they read books. When I'm an adult, the thing that makes you big is reading books. And you can do that point home is point out when you're doing something that only you can do because you're an adult or because you're big point out that the reason you get to do that thing is because you can read. Like driving is a great example. We couldn't drive the car unless mom or dad had a license and you can't get a license until you go to the DMV and you take a test that you have to read to get that license. So because we did that work, we can drive the car to the park and drive the car to the store and and get all these benefits of doing these big kid type things, right? I can have a bank account. I can buy something at the store. I can read the ingredients. I can do all of these practical things that make me a big person. So there's nothing more powerful to a child than wanting to be accepted as a big kid. <laughs> That's a very motivating factor. So if you can paint the picture that big people read, and if you like a big reading is a part of that journey, you can get into some really deep intrinsic motivation. And that is way more powerful than, you know, sitting a child down to the vinegar and flour, and bribing them with stickers uh, that they're able to go out to play until their vinegar is done. Right. Um, so using purpose and meaning is a huge motivator.
0: I love that. And, and the, I love the intentionality of Look what I can do right now because I can read and almost just, just sharing your, your love and gratitude that I, you can read. I'm so grateful that I yes. was able to read that or I'm so grateful that I can read so that we can have this time and read the story together right now. Yeah, it's wonderful to be able to take children in and out of
1: time, right? So I can project their minds deep into time and say, aren't we so happy that we can read the story now in real life? And aren't you so glad that when mom was little, I didn't give up when it was hard for me to learn how to read. And aren't you going to be so glad when you can be a dad reading the story and won't you get so happy. So we've, t- we've gone in time from right now we're having fun because a long time ago, something good happened. And right now is the, is going to be the long time ago in your future self, right? So you're taking them in their their brains, they don't have, pre. they don't have fully developed prefrontal cortexes. So this is a very unnatural skill for them. Kids are very in the now. So to start practicing this in the past, in the future, and get them thinking about how their actions now affect their future selves and how their behavior is tied to certain, it's like the whole cause and effect thing, right? Just to be pointing that out day in and day in and day out, just in your normal day to day is really powerful.
0: And I love what what you're saying here, and I mean I need to emphasize this because I I can see myself doing this wrong in moments when I'm not showing up in the with the right mindset. I love how in all these examples you're pointing out, Katie, that I'm not trying to weaponize or get them afraid of the future to make them read. Right? So so, so you can say, "Goodness, if you don't practice reading today," you know. All these awful yes. things are going to happen to you, right? So positive. you could you could use that same that same idea to scare them into reading, but that is not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is is not uh, to frighten them into doing reading. What we're trying to do is just to get them excited about reading and point them towards all the beautiful things that they're going to experience in life, all the opportunities that are going to be open for them because of reading. Is that? Absolutely. Yes. That's such an important point. So Katie, we've talked a lot about stories and reading stories to your kids. Could you expound to us more about why reading aloud is so important? Yes, absolutely.
1: That's a great question. So essentially if you think about a baby and a baby's developing brain all the time, babies are listening, right? They don't speak. They don't do anything with their like output for a very long time. There are a lot of words that go in before there are any words that come out and they're not just idly listening and they're not just trying to piece out individual words. There's a lot going on when a baby is listening to language. They're figuring out the cadence, the tone, the emotion of it. They're even figuring out something called the phonotactic rules of our language, which means the rules about what sounds can go together, consonant blends and can I have an uh a case f like that's not a sound that happens in English usually. Like if I if I were to say like that's a fake word that doesn't even sound like an english word, right? but if <laughs> i say right, it doesn't say you're like that's not an english word, right? right. cuz it breaks these but if i say schmoodlepuff, you're like, oh, perfectly valid. it's not a real word, but perfectly valid, you know?" so the like very very young children can identify these things, so they're they're very intense listeners. and as kids go through their next phase of development when they're two, three, four, five, when they're getting ready to learn how to read, preparing their brains to to read, we talk to them a lot, right? But the average adult, as you're just kind of chatting, you you say about 130 words per minute, which is decent, it's great. But if you compare that to how many words you are putting into a child's brain, when you are just steady stream with your voice, reading an engaging story, like you're, you know, 10 times the, um, the number of words that are in their brain. And they've actually done studies that show that one of the main there' a gap in education where we we that kids from high socioeconomic settings, home settings, do very well in school, and kids from lower socioeconomic settings struggle. And they've found that one of the determining factors here is just how many words the child has heard by the time they're three. So from a lower socioeconomic setting or home, kids have typically heard about 13 million words, but from a higher a higher socioeconomic family, they've heard 45 million words. That's a 30 million word gap, right? Wow. Yeah. So they've, they've determined that this gap is tied to future academic gains and their ability to learn language and to learn how to read and speak and write well. So if you are just focusing every day on getting a lot of words into those ears, the ears of your, you're doing them a huge service because what you're doing is laying the foundation for their listening comprehension. We are really worried in the literacy world about reading comprehension, but what few people realize is that those skills actually be laying on a foundation of listening comprehension. Because when I'm late, when i word, there's three parts to what my brain is doing. I'm looking at the letters with my eyes and I have to know what that letter makes, right? So that's the first part. And the second part is I have to take multiple sounds and I have to blend them into a word that I know. And then the third part is assigning meaning to that word, right? So I have to know what the letter says. I have to put the letters together and I have to figure out what it means. So if I'm If I haven't had a lot of words going into my brain, it's safe to assume that I don't know as many words as someone who has had more words put into their brain, right? So -hmm. if I sound out a word and then uh, it's not a word that I've heard before, maybe the word is, is, I've never heard the word pumpkin before. It's not a part of my my heard language repertoire. Um, If I sound it out, I can't assign meaning to it right? I need an adult to say like, Oh, a pumpkin is, and then define the word for me. Right. But if we have spent a lot of time laying this listening foundation, this listening foundation, we've also laid a foundation for vocabulary. So then when we go to sound words out, we recognize the words that the code or sound out. And that leads to strong reading comprehension. And there's all sorts of great things that happen in a developing brain when we hear language. And those are just a few of them.
0: So you're saying that listening comprehension is the foundation of reading comprehension. Correct. Yes. Very interesting to end our podcast. What are some final parting tips that you can give us as parents or guides to help our students in their development of reading? That's such a good question. Sitting down
1: with a developing reader can be a really hard thing to do as a parent. I know even though I have a lot of knowledge about literacy and lots of practice reading with kids, I can still sit down with one of my kids and feel really tense and frustrated when they can't get a word right. And so just know that you're going to feel that way and go into that situation with a lot of deep, calm breaths and
0: a lot of grace for yourself because everyone feels that way. Sounds like you're asking us to be mindful, which we talked, we've it, that just keeps coming up in our, in our podcast episodes is this, this concept of just being aware, being self-aware, being mindful of where you're at and giving yourself a little bit of grace, taking some deep breaths and.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And just knowing that you're not alone in that struggle. It's a really normal way to feel. So some tips going into that situation, I find that it's really helpful to, when you're, when you have a big person finger and you're pointing to small text, it's kind of hard for kids to see what what letter you're actually pointing to. So I like to have a toothpick or something that's very pointy. You can use pencil. Something that's really fun to do is um, to get a box of, they're like sandwich toothpicks, but they're shaped like swords. I call them reading swords. And you give the child a reading sword and there's a, po- a pokey tip that points exactly to where they're supposed to be tracking with their eyes. And it just kind of gives this like fun adventure to this process and it gives them something to focus on and helps there be clarity in where they are, which they're not only learning how to read, but their eye muscles are learning how to track and stay focused on something small. So they're kind of climbing multiple mountains there and that's something that can really help them. So that would be one tip. And then some kids get really frustrated when you interrupt them. You don't give them enough time to get the word out, because we kind of feel this need to help a lot. So what I like to do is take a little marker and I draw a little circle on my hand, and this is the help button. So when the student or the child wants help, they push the help button, and if they don't push the help button, I keep my mouth closed and I will just let them struggle as long as they are focused. But as soon as they push that help button, I I give them the help that they need. And another two things really with um, giving help, so we don't want to let kids struggle too much if it's a word where we know they haven't learned that rule or you know they're in journey 2 in treasure hunt and it, we know it's like a journey 3 sound team or they're just not they don't have what they need you can just tell them those words there's no point in making them struggle through something that they have not learned yet so just go ahead and tell them those words and tell them why you're why you're telling them that just say oh this is you know, this team, you haven't learned that yet. I'll help you. And then just read the word for them. So take that frustration out so that they can keep going. Another tip. So kids use a few things to pre-decide whether or not they're going to be able to read something. And they use font style, font size, number of words on the page, how long the word is to decide if it's going to be easy or hard. And this is one of my favorite things, this limiting belief to just completely destroy from the beginning. And you can see this in treasure hunt. There are lots of longer words that are actually completely decodable. If you just know the journey one sounds, so like consonants and short vowels. And so I love to show them really long words that are all totally decodable and to, to prove to them that they have the skills to read long words. As you do that, they, they see a long word and they don't, immediately approach that word with like fear. Like I probably am going to fail. They're like, Oh, long words. I'm not afraid of long words. And we'll use that phrase. I'm not, I'm not afraid of long words. And then you can, you can put things in different fonts and and make very easy words small. So they learn, Oh, like small words don't mean hard, you know? So you can kind of break down these limiting beliefs and something that's really fun to do You know, there's some books that are made for kids and it's really obvious that they're made for kids that are learning how to read. They're called leveled readers or easy readers. But then we have books that are read aloud books that adults read to kids. They're stories for kids, but the kids know that they are more complicated to read. So what I love to do when we're doing our read aloud is I'll quickly scan a page and I'll take a highlighter or pencil and I will highlight all of the words on that page that I know my reader is capable of reading And as we read, I'll take the reading sword or just my finger and I'll track where I'm reading. And then when we get to a highlighted word, they know that that's their word to read. And so you're breaking down this idea that just because it's in, it's not in a leveled reader that they can't do it. Right. So I'll have them do some reading in that book and help me read that, that book, access the story that they're really interested in accessing. And then I'll look at them and I'll say, oh my goodness, look at what you're doing. This is amazing. You are a super strong reader and help them see that the idea that this, that they can only read easy things is really not helpful. And it's not true either, that they're perfectly capable of reading very difficult things and things that are long or things that are smaller, where there's lots of words on a page. So breaking down those limiting beliefs is another great tip.
0: And I think that just takes us full circle to what you shared with us at the beginning of the podcast, which is just purposely drawing their attention to, uh, what you're doing at the moment and, and what they're doing at the moment and energizing that greatness within them, which is a skill we, we teach in Prenda is you're doing this right now. Notice it because you're great and you're succeeding.
1: Yeah. Half the battle with reading is that, that limiting self-perception that I'm probably going to make a mistake. And just totally just taking that off the table and knowing, um, that there are going to be mistakes. I like to tell kids that in order to learn how to read, you're going to have to make a million mistakes. So every time they make a mistake, that's a forward step on their journey. And I'll even draw them a little picture, like here's you and here's learning how to read like a, like a, an adult. And every time you make a mistake, it's, you're getting closer to this. So, cause they're, they're going to feel like, oh, I'm bad. And I'm, I'm not succeeding. But if you reframe that for them as a forward step, then that's really helpful to them because then they're just collecting mistakes. And this uh self-perception that they're a struggling reader, that they're bad at reading whatever, is totally gone. Now it's like, oh, like this is the p- the normal journey of learning how to read is making these mistakes. And I'm doing a great job making mistakes. I must be doing a great job learning to read. I'm a good reader. And you just always want to circle back to that self-belief. That they're a strong reader. One of my favorite tips for kids who are especially struggling readers is called choral reading. And this is pretty much the bullet for helping kids move from sounding out like chunky words into getting kids to read fluently. So, what you're going to do is you're just going to sit down next to them and you're going to track the words and you're both going to read out loud. They're going to be decoding as slow as they need to go. And you're just going to say those words slowly along with them. And they're, it's, this helps their brains notice the patterns and then you're immediately giving them the answer to the word. And that, this helps build pattern recognition in their brain. And so it kind of takes away some stress of, I don't know this word and I have to produce all these sounds myself to helping them read along with you. And if you combine that with strong decoding skills, you will get nine times out of 10, a fluent reader. Eventually it takes a little bit of time, but that's a great trick. Another thing you can do to build fluency is to have students read a short passage once and then just go back and read that. And we, we call that reading again for fluency. So that's another good trick. Another interesting thing to be aware of is that there's something called reading endurance, which means that, I mean, your brain, when you're doing a new skill, you can equate this to like lifting weights. At first, when you're lifting weights, you know, your muscles get tired really fast and you have to put those weights down and walk away. You can come back relatively quickly and lift more weights, but you need breaks. And that's how the brain is with reading. And especially your eye muscles, everything in the developing reader gets tired really fast. So that's why whenever they see large, like long passages, they're going to be like, Oh, like, I don't want to read all of that. Cause it's so much effort. That's, that's pretty much the equivalent of you looking at tons of weights to be like, Oh, this is going to be hard. Right. But if you can just shorten that expectation to say like, okay, it's reading time. We're going to read for five minutes. It's much more effective to read for five minutes, like three times a day than to try to sit down and read for 15 or 20 minutes at once, because your student just gets into this exhaustion mode and then they're not successful. And then they start having bad feelings about reading and about themselves. So if you keep things really
0: short, that is super helpful. So many great tips and insights, Katie. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing these gems of literacy with us today. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. And that wraps up our episode for this week. Just as a reminder to all our listeners, the opinions and comments shared in this podcast are not the official opinions and comments of The purpose of this podcast is to continue an ongoing conversation about education and empowerment. If you would like to continue this conversation with us in person, join our lunch and chat every Thursday at 12 p.m. Arizona time. Everyone is welcome. And if you can't make the lunch and chat, not a problem. You can reach out to us at at prenda.co to share with us what your thoughts are about the podcast or to suggest topics for future podcast episodes. We want this podcast to serve you. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next time.